past three weeks, we've been engaged in a conversation about the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit. And uh, man, I'm, aren't you grateful for this time of worship this morning? This has been a gift. And I'm grateful uh, for all those who've done so much prep to make that happen. But it's about the Spirit of God that's among us. I'm grateful for new life and getting to see baptism and Holy Spirit in new ways uh, for the Pearson boys. And so it's been a good morning already. You know, we we sit in this waiting time, and we talked about this a a few weeks ago, uh, waiting between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. And at times in my life, I've, I've, I've known that. I've had that concept that we're waiting on something, but I thought we'd just start to sit on our hands until Jesus returns. And I've been so reminded through this study and through this conversation about the importance of what God has called us to now. He's called us to several things. One of those things is something we've been praying over the last few weeks, the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's this prayer we offer to God to say, God, bring more of your goodness, more of your will. Make this land more like the land of heaven that we are citizens of. Uh, But we're also called to to live in tune with God's future. It's not just about uh, the past and trying to restore to a, a pristine moment in the past, but it is that God is bringing his future into the present, and that's what we pray when we pray God's kingdom to earth, is God align our lives with the future that you are bringing. And so we live as peacemakers in this world. We live as people who know that there's a kingdom on its way, that this, this world's not our home. But in a sense, it is our home that God's going to remake and restore and make all things new. And that's good news, right? But it's also that we are called to be transformed. And that's not our work. We, we work in concert with the Spirit, but we we ask the Spirit would come and do what only the Spirit can do in our lives, and that's the transformation, the holiness, the sanctification of our lives. So today I want to continue in this conversation. I know in a room this size that there are people with all kinds of experiences when it comes to the Holy Spirit, all kinds of teaching that is kind of the background of this conversation. And I can't speak this morning to all of those stories and all of the tribes that we might come from, but I can explain, I think, a little bit as I've looked into the history of our movement in Churches of Christ of some of the reasons we've taught the way we have about the Holy Spirit. And i got to tell you, it's been so helpful to me to understand this history because uh, when I went into that history class and understood the beginnings of our movement, it began to explain to me why it is we did the things that we did, why it is that we taught the ways uh, that we did. And it helped me understand that there was a reason, that there were things we were reacting to. And I want to share some of that history this morning with you because I think it's important to know our past if we're to understand our present, that there are things that formed us that sometimes we aren't aware of. And so I want to share those things with you this morning. Let's begin with a prayer, though, as we open uh, to God's Word and to His story. Father, we, uh, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word, the Word made flesh in Jesus, and Your Word that You've left with us that Your Spirit continues to inspire. And this morning, God, I pray that You'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, the question I want to start with this morning is a question that may be hard for you to kind of answer on first glance. The question is, how do you read the Bible? And I guess before we get to how or how we interpret it, the question is, do you read the Bible? And I hope that this isn't the only bit of Bible you're getting each week is when you come here to service. The Word of God is a rich text that the Spirit continues to work in. So I want to encourage you on a regular basis to be involved in study of God's Word, asking the Spirit to make it clear to you. But if you do, and I, I know many of us, many of us have, have read through this book, we've memorized sections, it's becoming more a part of our story 
as the days go by. There's a, there's a phrase I've seen on bumper stickers, and it's a phrase that some of us may have grown up with. And this, was, this is the phrase I saw on the bumper sticker not long ago. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And for some of us, that may be the way we, when it comes to Scripture. As well, Scripture says it clearly. We, we practice what Scripture says, but it's not really all that easy, is it? Because there are parts of Scripture that absolutely, we read it, we go, yeah, my life's aligned with that, but there are parts that we're still trying to find to be true in our lives. Am I right? And even in that, there's culture that impacts the way we read Scripture. And so I don't notice that many women out there this morning that have head coverings on while we were praying. Like we read parts of Scripture, we understand there's culture that's tied into how this was written and the culture it was written into, and God's still speaking in new into our day. So we all interpret Scripture when we read it, but how do we go about doing that? And one of the ways that's been most helpful to me is something called Wesley's Quadrilateral. It's something I learned about in grad school. It really helped me when I thought about inspiration. John Wesley was the one who first talked about it. He talked about our, our interpretation or our discernment as a four-legged stool. And the, the most important leg of that stool for John Wesley was, it was Scripture. It was the, the main part of it all. But there's more than just Scripture that impacts the way we discern God's will in our lives. And he talked about several other things. One of those things is tradition. Tradition's been a, a key part. In fact, we wouldn't have the Bible if it weren't for the church passing on the good news of Jesus Christ. They were the ones who helped discern which books got in here. We trust that God works through tradition, the work of the church. But, but there's also experience. We bring our experience to the Word of God, and that's part of how we discern God's will. And so there were centuries ago where slavery was even defended through the Word of God. But our experience has led us to realize there are things that aren't always the truth uh, that we need to center our lives with. Yes, you can point out scriptures that would defend that, but the the whole of scripture is pointed in a complete opposite direction. Uh, There's all kinds of things. Reason's another one of those. And so those four legs of the stool, scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, kind of form our discernment and how we come to the Word of God, how we discern God's will for our lives. And before the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, there was basically one church. There was this you know, church that was kind of the church Catholic, like universal church, right? And it, there was a split around 1000 AD between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. But in the Western Church, it all kind of went along after that until the, the Reformation began in the you know, 15th, 16th century with the Enlightenment and all of this going on. And Martin Luther and the Reformers, who were part of this Reformation, believed things had gotten out of hand, that, that there had been excesses in the church, and that really tradition had played too strong of a role in the way we view uh, our, our role as the people of God. And so they said, really, we want to be a back-to-the-Bible people. We want to, one of the phrases that became important for the reform was sola scriptura, scripture alone. They believed that scripture was the highest authority in our lives. And our movement, the restoration movement, which Churches of Christ emerged from, had some similar ideas about things. Um, one of the statements we said early on is we have no creed but the Bible, we're not going to take human creeds and things that have been pulled together. It's actually Scripture itself that we want to be the thing we go back to. We're a back-to-the-Bible movement. It's a great impulse that I appreciate and I'm so grateful for. So why is this conversation about church history significant for our current discussion about the Holy Spirit? Because our past matters. It, it, it got us to where we are. And if we don't know how we got to where we are, it's interesting how doomed we are to repeat some of the same mistakes that our past sought to fix. And our understanding of the Holy Spirit cannot be understood without understanding the reasons for our views on the Holy Spirit. For example, in the 20th century and some of the 19th century, the Holy Spirit, by some in our movement, was only seen as a word-only 
perspective. The, the scripture was the place that, that God worked through the Holy Spirit. This was basically the Holy Spirit's work. That once the words of scripture were completed, that that was the Holy Spirit uh, that worked through with us. Really, indwelling wasn't seen as something that the Holy Spirit did. And some of us grew up with that teaching on the Holy Spirit. Maybe an understanding in the church you grew up with. But before we talk about this, our church's understanding of the Spirit, we should discuss how many in Churches of Christ came to this view because there's reasons for all of this. You see, the Restoration Movement, the Stone Campbell Movement, whatever you want to call it, kind of the Churches of Christ has emerged from, started among several Christians that withdrew from several denominations believing that they were divisive elements and they wanted to come together to unite people around Jesus Christ and around Scripture as the core of all that we would pursue in our life and faith together, which is a great impulse in so many ways. It's a wonderful vision. And those Christians emerged in a specific period of time. It was the early 1800s, and it was in Kentucky. It was in this time in American history called the Second Great Awakening. Frontier revivalism was strong at that period of time. And in Kentucky, it was amazing because many of the Christians who were around at that time, they, 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 they had a Calvinistic perspective of the world. John Calvin had some interesting influences on how people saw faith. And, and in that time period, Calvinism really saw the world as that, that God predestines certain individuals um, to be a part of God's elect, and then there's certain ones that aren't part of God's elect. And in these revivals, what people were desiring was that their belief was that if you're one of the elect, what you can have is an experience of the Holy Spirit in your life, an emotional encounter with God that would affirm that you're one of God's elect, one of his chosen people. So all these revivals are going on. If you go back and read some of these stories, it's amazing. In fact, if you're bored this afternoon, I would just tell you, Google the Cane Ridge Revival, okay? And just see what went on. In fact, our people were there, Barton Stone was there at this revival. Some crazy stuff that the Holy Spirit seems to be doing. And so uh, all these people are going to these revivals, and what they desire, their they're desire in their hearts is, God, I want to be one of your chosen people. Would you confirm in my spirit through some experience that I'm actually your chosen one? And I want you to imagine being someone in that area. You desire God with all of your heart. You want to be in relationship uh, with him. But what you need more than anything else is this confirmation through this emotional experience to confirm that you're one of God's chosen people. You're one of his kids. And you go to revival after revival, and everybody else seems to be having this experience, but you can't seem to have the same experience. What would that feel like? And so many in our movement, in fact, Barton Stone spent over a year going to different revivals during this time period. Praying to God, would you please confirm that I'm one of your kids? Would you please confirm I'm one of the elect? And he would sit and he would wait and nothing would happen in response. And part of our hesitancy about the Holy Spirit, I believe, was a reaction to this kind of environment that was going on. Because what people in our, the beginnings of our movement tried to say was, no, 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 you don't have to wait on an experience of the Spirit. You can come to Scripture. And you can follow Jesus. You can do exactly as they did in Acts, and you can be baptized into his name. You don't have to wait on an experience to confirm you're one of God's kids. No, you can actually come to faith through reading Scripture and committing your life to him and being baptized in his name. And I just imagine what that news, how good that news would have been if for years you'd been desiring this experience. And finally, you're told, no, God wants all to come to him. It would have been an incredible experience, and for Barton Stone, it was one of those experiences that launched him as a leader in our church in so many ways. But you can imagine also how, how an aversion to that 
frontier revivalism, that sense of we have to have an experience in order to confirm our salvation. You can imagine how that trait in us is still passed down, this wariness towards emotional worship. Like we're a left brain movement if we're honest, right? And if any of you have grown up in this tradition, you have a little bit of wariness of, I don't know about raising hands and I don't know about all, you know, that is a genetic trait that's been passed down to us, but there's a reason for that genetic trait. And I hope this history helps you understand that because there was a reaction against excesses that were different than the story that Scripture was telling about how people come to faith in God. And it's amazing how, how helpful that has been to me, but it's, what's, what's more amazing is Martin Stone comes to faith and he hooks up with this guy named Alexander Campbell to, to really launch this movement of, of, of churches. And they don't agree on this Holy Spirit stuff. Barton Stone actually believes that, that the Spirit's involved in these exercises, this stuff at the revivals. And Alexander Campbell, he's a little more a guy of the age of enlightenment. He doesn't quite get all of that. They both believed in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, though. And it was generations later that teaching began to change on that to say it's word only, not a Spirit that indwells us. But despite their differences, and I could go on and on a list of all the doctrinal differences these guys had they were different with one another. What they agreed on, Jesus Christ, united them more than any of those differences could divide them. They, they said, we're going to be a back-to-the-Bible movement, and Jesus is going to be the center of it all. We want to be a unity movement. But all of this impacts how we come to understand the Holy Spirit. And that's the question, I guess, is what does all this history have to do with 2016, right? What does this have to do with where we are? And what I'm about to share is one of the biggest uh, things that I've, t- I've learned through this study has been what I'm about to share with you this morning. See, the debate about the Spirit, whether it's Word only, or whether the Spirit is an indwelling Spirit, or whether there's miraculous gifts that are still available today, surrounds only a few verses in Scripture. But I don't believe that the Word only view that many of us have been taught can actually be found by going to Scripture itself. Remember Wesley's quadrilateral, like there's four parts of the Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And i got to tell you, nowhere in Scripture can I find it where Jesus says, for instance, I'm going to send the Spirit to you, but only until Scripture's completed, and then the Spirit's going to depart until I come back. That teaching isn't found in the Word of God. Think with me for a moment about this, right? Our, our movement sought to restore first century principles. We saw what the Holy Spirit did in the first century, and we wanted to restore things back to the way it was. An, a, a, a great desire, a great vision to bring things back to the simplicity of the original call. But if you assume that's the goal and you end up being able to carry that out in some way, you believe you've restored the first century church, then what happens when you believe you've restored it? What you begin to believe is how we do things is the way God intends for them to be done, and anyone else who doesn't come to the same views must not be looking at Scripture with all honesty in their lives. Because if they, if they would just read it, they would come to the same conclusions that we have because we've restored the way it should And if you restore things back to the first century and compare it to the restoration movement in the 19th and 20th centuries, there are similarities that are there. Well, except for the church buildings we began to build and the classes we began to hold on Sunday morning and the kitchens we had in our buildings and our movement divided over every single one of these matters. Because if we've restored it, then why do we need to change things? And I'm grateful for microphones. So my voice is there for my family this afternoon, and I'm grateful for air conditioning. Can anyone say amen to that this morning? A little warm in here, it feels like, maybe. And so if you look at the first century, many things were similar. There were differences, but the stark difference between the first century church and the experience we had in the Restoration Movement and this frontier revivalism is we were not experiencing 
the Spirit to the same degree the first century was. So if you've restored everything, but this experience of the Spirit isn't here, then what's wrong? What do we do uh, about that? For instance, in in the book of Acts, you read about tongues of fire being on people's head at Pentecost. You read about uh, being spoken in different languages and people from all different nations understanding the Word of God. You see healings. You see people rising from the dead. That's not been my experience so far in church life. And so you begin to look at why is that experience so radically different from the experience we have currently with with God. But if we restored the first century church, then there must be a reason why we don't experience things to the same degree they did. And so we search the scriptures to try to figure out why there would be a difference between the experience then and our experience now. Have you ever asked this question before? Like, what would it have been like to have been there on Pentecost? And why in the world do we not have the same experience today? And we found our passage as we searched scripture. Our passage was in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles, open with me if you would. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8 is where I want to read. I'm not going to read the marriage section of 1 Corinthians 13 that's read at most weddings. It's what follows that that I want to read this morning. It says, their love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So we read that and we said, see, there it is. We were promised that the tongues would come to a cease. We, we were promised that prophecy would be no more. See, our experience lines up with what Scripture had said. As it says in verse 10, when completeness comes, or when perfection comes, your translation might say, and the Greek word there for perfection or completeness is the word teleon. It's the word that means complete, mature, lacking in nothing, perfect. A telos is like the end. It's the goal of what we long to see come to fruition. To be complete is to see everything that God intended come to pass. So it was argued from our our ancestors that if we've restored the first century church, then maybe we're not supposed to experience this because completeness actually has come. In fact, The way we saw it was, well, now that Scripture's complete, the Spirit's done its work, and now Scripture plays the role the Spirit used to play. It's completed its task. And some of you grew up with this teaching, I know. Let's read on, though, because it's important that we don't end in verse 10. I think the understanding comes as we read on verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We see dimly now, don't we, church? There are things I want to know about the future. There are things I want to know about God, and I don't fully understand everything. Some things are mystery. It's okay, I'm learning as a minister to say, I don't know to questions. And sometimes we've lacked that humility. There's mystery involved in the world. One day, it's going to be clear. We're going to see God face to face. Everything will be made clear. But I don't think that day's here. I can't wait for the day, but you see what we did here? In fact, if you go back to verse 10, uh, it says then. If you'll put that back up there, verse 10. I'll read it here. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflections of a mirror. Then, that's the key word, then we shall see face to face. When is then? Then is when completeness comes. 
in that day when we're face to face with God, we'll see clearly it will not be dim anymore. This is what I began to realize as I was studying this and I was looking at our background is we didn't get our view of the Holy Spirit from Scripture as much as we want to claim we're a sola scripture of people. We got our view of the Holy Spirit from our experience. Our experience says we don't experience the same things the first century church did. So what we did is we tried to make our experience normative for everyone everywhere. We went to Scripture looking for a defense of it and we found it. We just read it poorly. There's more of the Spirit that we've missed out on. Our view has almost entirely been entirely determined by our experience, even though we claim to be a back-to-the-Bible movement. We took our failure to experience the Holy Spirit, we normalized it, and we defended it. But just because we weren't experiencing the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect more in our relationship with God. We should experience the Holy Spirit. But instead of that, we made it normative not to. And even though we couldn't see it at the time, we got to our view of the Holy Spirit through our experience and not through a good reading of Scripture. Another way we defended this word-only approach was by saying that John 14 through 16 was a passage of Scripture that was actually not for us. It was written to those original disciples, and that was it. These are the words of Jesus. Let me read this to you. John 14, uh, verse 16 is where I want to begin. Hear these words that apply to this whole uh, topic. Jesus says this. He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. Verse 16, the key word there is forever. Not just for the people He's talking to. This is a Spirit that will be there forever. In the same way, this one will live in you, verse 17 says. And then of all verses that I'm surprised we missed, Acts chapter 2, our favorite chapter, makes this so clear. Acts 2, if you turn with me. Verse 38 is where I'll start reading. But I want us to read verse 39 as well. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. If you have been baptized, church, you have been gifted with the Holy Spirit. And that wasn't just a promise for the apostles. It was a promise for the children. It was a promise for all those who would be far off, including us. We spent so much time trying to deny the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. It's time to start learning how we receive and welcome the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says it this way, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And I've got to be honest, in my life, I've been a part quenching the Holy Spirit. There have been times where I've said, well, I guess this is as far as my discipleship and my transformation is going to go. I guess there's no power beyond this because I can't quite get it done. If you're depending on your own power to become the kind of people God wants you to be, you are quenching a spirit that's available to you with power that cannot be mustered on your own. And what it might look like to walk more into that. To not see our sin struggles and say, well, I guess this is just the way it is. But it's to say, God, we need a miraculous dose of something beyond ourselves. A power that only you can provide to make us more holy. To look more like Jesus than what we currently look like. How many of you want that power in your life? Want to ask God, God, I don't want to stop in my transformation. I don't want to depend on my power. Too many of our churches and too many of our Christians are engaging in mission that can be described without the work of God. And if it's 
Something that can be done without God doing it, it may not be the Holy Spirit doing it. I dream of a day where this church does things and we point back to it. And I, I, I'm, Don't hear me saying we haven't done this already, right? We see these moments where we look at it and we go, that cannot be described in any other way but the Holy Spirit's work because I couldn't do it on my own. You've experienced that, haven't you? And I want to see more of that. I don't want to see less of it. I don't want to do things under my own power and then point and say, glory be to God. I want to do things that cannot be described where I can't even begin to claim it because people would laugh at it. That's a, you think that's you, Colin? You think that's the elders of this church? You think that's our family? No. The only way that can be described is the, the glory of God that goes to God alone. Don't you want to be a part of something like that? And that's what happened in the early church. Thousands were coming to know him. And I, I pray about this in our city, that, that things would happen in this city that cannot be explained outside of the power of God. In Acts 2, this was happening. They thought they were drunk in Acts 2 because they're talking in different languages. It's like, we know this isn't you, so something's going on there. And they're like, no, it's 9 in the morning. It's not that. It's the Holy Spirit of God. In the same way as the story goes on, we read about Cane Ridge and these people coming to faith, and the Spirit is involved in that. Years ago, in 1906, there's the Azusa Street rival and, uh, uh, Revival uh, in, in, in Los Angeles, and the Holy Spirit does miraculous stuff that is still trying to be figured out. In Toronto, decades ago, stuff's going on that can't be explained. God's at work, there's revival. Just the other day, I was reading about a new revival that seems to be going on in West Virginia, of all places. 2,500 students in West Virginia in this city coming to faith in Jesus because of a miraculous move through a high school and students who are praying for God's revival and people are coming to know Him. Don't tell me this just happens in the first century. And oh, that God would do the same today. That we would be able to have works done among us that we cannot point to ourselves, but all we can point to is the power of God at work in our lives. But it cannot happen if it's only found here. The only way that happens is if we don't quench that spirit and we invite and say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Come, come wreck our lives as you need to, God. And that, that's a scary prayer, is it not? Any of you start praying those prayers, you put your hard hats on when you do that, right? We need some hard hat prayers around here. We don't know what's going to fall out of heaven when we start praying them, but we trust that God has us in His hands. These are the kind of prayers I want us to pray. Pray these prayers over your family. It may get messy and you may not like the outcome, but would you want to live in your own power or do you want to live in the Holy Spirit's power to do things that we can't control. That's what we want. We want control, don't we? We want to hold it in our hands. We want to be able to know what's coming. We want to show up Sunday morning and know when service is going to be out. I know the children's ministry is like ready for that moment, right? God, would you do your work? That's our prayer. Right now I want to close, but I want this to be our prayer together, church. What are those prayers this week that are going to be your hard hat prayers? One of those prayers where you're going to let go of control of something and say, God, I want some, you to do something in our day, in our family that cannot be explained without your name being attached to it. God, we want to do, you to do something in Collin County. We want those stories to be told around the world, but we want them not to have our name on it. We want your name to be on it. That's what I desire, church. I know you want the same things for your family, don't you? You want the same thing in your life. Let's pray uh, the Lord's Prayer as we close this morning as we've been doing the last few weeks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.